We're looking at the theme of that hymn that we just sang this morning in a couple of our texts. I'm going to be looking at Psalm 68, uh, from which uh, Handel's Messiah takes uh, two selections that I mentioned in the newsletter that I sent out on Friday. And we'll also be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, where Paul, uh, in a sense, interprets, exposits uh, key verse in Psalm 68. So you might want to look up Psalm 68 and also have uh, uh, Ephesians 4 at your fingertips because we'll be seeking to to listen to what Paul has to say about uh, Psalm 68, 18 there. So let's begin with uh, Psalm 68. I'm going to read the entirety of the psalm, although we'll focus in mainly on uh, just verses 11 and 18. But the entire psalm will give you a context for those verses that will be helpful. Again, we see a heading here to the choir master. This is a congregational hymn, in a sense, a psalm of David and a song, in other words, to be sung with music in that day. Let's uh, listen to this as God's word to us today. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, The earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil, though you men lie among the sheepfolds. The wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred? O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode. Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. 
And to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation. The Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Well, we move today, uh, you notice from the Psalms that took our focus to lament and imprecation the last two Lord's Day to a psalm of praise, to a psalm of rejoicing. I mean, there are other elements in this psalm as well. We, we want to remember that, uh, that the psalms often have, in fact, most of the time, psalms have a number of different elements in them. So they'll have elements of confession as well as imprecation. They'll have elements of praise and thanksgiving, even as they have elements of mourning as well. Uh, often we see within a psalm a progression, in fact, for, through those uh, various elements. Uh, but we're primarily looking at the theme of rejoicing here, and, and the context of this particular psalm, we might know, seems that in the uh, minds of some to be the, the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Uh, that happened during David's reign, as the Ark of the Covenant was finally brought into Jerusalem, where the temple would be built. As there was a great celebration that accompanied that. Uh, celebration seemed to be echoed in the psalm that we used for our call to worship as well, and we see it here. So that's the historical context, but let's just briefly uh, go through this psalm a as a whole and see the flow of thought here and then focus in on uh, the verses that we'll be uh, primarily thinking about. Uh, the psalm opens with uh, God arising and his enemies being scattered. Uh, here is the answer to those psalms of lament, to those cries of lament and those imprecations, right? Uh, God always answers those prayers. Always answers those prayers. He answers your prayers of sorrow and sadness, your prayers for justice. 
for right to be established. And we see that portrayed here. God arises, in a sense, in response to the prayers of his people. And I want you to remember that progression from lament, from imprecation, from need, from sorrow, to rejoicing, to exaltation. That, that is a, a key theological truth that you need to have a firm grip on in your Christian life. We'll come back to that, I think, in a, in a few moments. But let's look at the, how the psalm progresses then. We have God arising, his enemies being scattered. They're like wax melting before him. Uh, so they are dissipated, they are destroyed. But notice verse 3, the response of the righteous, that is to rejoice. And again, we're not saying here that there are some people that are righteous in and of themselves. Okay, we're not saying that there are some people that are good in and of themselves. This righteousness that is spoken of here is a righteousness that is given to God by his people as a gift of grace on their repentance and faith. So God's people rejoice. And so we're not surprised then to see in verse 4 through 6 a call to praise God. Praise the God that has revealed himself as the Lord. There in, uh, next to the last line in verse 4, his name is the Lord. Literally, his name is Yah. It uses a short and firm of Yahweh there, which emphasizes the fact that, that this God, who is the God of his people, is the God who has being, existence in himself. He has being in himself. Everything else has derived being. Everything comes from him. That is the God who has revealed himself as the God of his people. And, and what wonderful, uh, what wonderful uh, appellations are given to him in verses 5 and 6 there, aren't they? Father of the fatherless. What a wonderful title for God. Father of the fatherless. In this world, there are those without the benefit of a loving father. God is a father to them, protector of widows, the most vulnerable of people in this culture. He is one who protects those who have no protector. He is one who uh, settles the solitary in a home. He is one who reaches out to those who are lonely, those who are feeling isolated and separated from others. He is one who gives freedom to the prisoners. Uh, what wonderful titles for our Lord. He is a God of mercy and of grace, isn't he? But, in contrast, again, with the, with the righteous or the wicked, the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And that leads the psalmist then to think about a, a, an example of God's saving power in the Exodus. So in verses 7 and following, 7 through 10, the psalmist is recalling the Exodus history of God's people. A history that's yours, if you belong to him. This is a history of your people. As the psalmist recalls, when God went out before his people as a warrior in the wilderness, in a sense, leading them into freedom, leading them ultimately into their inheritance, a place where they can live, there in verse, 20, verse 10, sorry, your flock found a dwelling in it, that is an inheritance that God had provided for them. And then we continue with that note of celebration in verse 11. Verse 11 is, is one of the ones that's uh, used in Messiah. Uh, the Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The Lord, 
the Lord's word gives him victories. I remind you perhaps of that image of Jesus in the book of Revelation, where he destroys his enemies with a word. His word is like a sword going out of his mouth, we're told, that destroys his enemies. We might say, in a, in a, in a sense, God doesn't have to lift a finger against his enemies. Just his word destroys them. And so it is the word of the Lord that is given these victories that the psalmist is celebrating. And what might be in view here as well is not only the, the victory there at the Exodus, we think with the reference of women, we think, for instance, of the Miriam and the other women rejoicing after the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea and the liberation of his people. Uh, might be in view here the, the song of Deborah and Barak as they celebrated the victory of God over their enemies later on in, in uh, the history of God's people. So God, God's word gives the victories, and his people relay the good news. That, that's literally what, what's used here, announcer of good news, or the announcing of good news. Uh, and that's the same, same imagery of giving good news, of course, that's picked up in the New Testament when it talks about the gospel as the good news. The good news to sinners is that God's word conquers. It conquers all sin, conquers all his enemies. That's the good news that we have to extol, that we have to give. And so, in a sense, uh, we could say uh, you are made heralds of this good news, just like these women here. And there are a number of passages that we could go to that uh, for that but you, having received the gospel of God in Jesus Christ, have good news for the world. The good news, really. Really, in a sense, it's the only good news, isn't it? In a world of sin, the good news is that God conquers all his enemies and the enemies of his people. And it goes on, verses 15 through 18, again, to... Uh, make reference probably to that uh, bringing up of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, it being designated as the place of worship for God's people. And so you have this uh, interesting little imagery here of the other mountains being jealous, even though they're bigger mountains than Mount Zion, than the mountain that Jerusalem is on, which is a relatively small mountain, hardly more than a hill. Those other mountains are jealous <laughs> because Mount Zion got chosen to be the place for the temple. And so that interesting imagery calls attention to God's, God's grace here. He's going to reside with his people. He's going to live with his people. And so in a sense, we have uh, metaphorically God coming into Jerusalem to make his home there in the midst of his people. Now, of course, this is a, a, an earthly earthly uh, experience, an earthly event that points to a spiritual reality. Uh, Solomon will acknowledge in his dedication of the temple that no structure built by human beings could, could be a place where God really dwelt in his essence. Uh, but this is going to point us to an important truth that Paul's going to bring out, and we'll look at that later. That's uh, that uh, verse 18 is the one from the Messiah that uh, Paul will exposit in Ephesians chapter 4. 
But let's go on and finish the psalm here, verses 19 through 23. God saves his people in answer to their prayers of imprecation, those prayers for judgment that we looked at last Lord's Day. Uh, God daily bears us up. God is our God of salvation. He brings deliverances from death. And how does he do that? By destroying the enemies of his people, all those who oppose what God is doing. And so that leads then again in verse 24 to praise. And the procession is mentioned here, which probably reflects that procession of the ark into Jerusalem, uh, but conveys something much more, doesn't it? Because the idea here is that that God is, is coming into his dwelling place and he's bringing his people with him. Okay, so David and the others are accompanying the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and, and that in a sense signifies God coming into his enthronement and bringing his people with him. That was reflected in the hymn that we just sang as well. So we'll look at that in more detail as we go to Ephesians chapter 5. I um, mean, chapter 4, but let's uh, look then at the ending of the psalm in verses 28 through 31. There's that renewed imprecation, calling for God to do what he has promised to do, to deliver his people. And notice not only is, it, is there pictured here the, the uh, uh, defeat of his enemies, trampling them underfoot, scattering those who delight in war, but look at verse 31. Noble shall come from Egypt, Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. Here it seems to be an allusion to the fact that some of these pagans are actually going to turn to God, uh, to look to him. And so there's that element that we noticed last Lord's Day of, of enemies being defeated by being made friends, okay? Uh, which is what God did with us, right? He made us who were enemies of him in our sin, his friends. And so that leads then fittingly to that beautiful call to universal praise of God in verses 32 through 35. All the kingdoms of the earth are called to join in the praise to God, to ascribe power to him. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. And you remember in this context, the sanctuary, the holy place, is that place where he dwells in the midst of his people. So awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. And notice how it ends here, and this is going to lead into our text in Ephesians as well, I think. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Now, how wonderful it is that God is the source of your strength and your power as a follower of his uh, well, with that in mind, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4 then and notice how Paul develops a theme in this chapter using Psalm 68.18 as, as a key illustration of that or a key uh, text for that. And we want to unpack then what he has uncovered for us here in this text. Now, to set the context, I'm going to read beginning at verse 1 of chapter 4, and read through 16. But as I'm reading this, especially, uh, especially be listening for how Paul is going to help us understand Psalm 68, 18. 
I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice the key point here that I think Paul is making in this text. Now, there's, there's all kinds of things in this text. We could spend a lot of time with it, but I want you to notice verse 7. Okay, verse 7 is the theological truth that Paul is going to use in order to, uh, and, and to help you understand it, he's going to use Psalm 68, 18. Look at verse 7 now. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now that's flowing out of everything he said in the first six verses. We're not going to take time to look at that in, in detail, but essentially he's saying the saving work of God in you leads to this point that grace has been given to each one of you according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace has been given to you. What a wonderful reminder, isn't it? Grace has been given to you. And that grace has a substance to it, Paul says. If you've been united with Christ by faith, through repentance and faith, if you've been united with Christ, then every one of you has been gifted according to the measure of the gift of Christ. In other words, Christ has measured out, we might say, the gift of his spirit to you. Notice that no one who belongs to Christ has not received his gift. 
Do you realize the magnitude of God's grace in this? You who have been brought to believe in the Messiah, Jesus, for your eternal salvation, have been gifted by him. And that very gifting brings with it a responsibility, doesn't it? We'll think about that in a moment. You have not been blessed this way to be a passive recipient. You've been gifted in a way that gives your life meaning and purpose that has an eternal, eternal ramification. Okay, you, if you're a believer, you don't have to search for meaning in this life. It has been given to you in Christ. And that meaning transcends any earthly role that you may have. Now, it will be worked out through those earthly roles. You have earthly callings, okay, but they're, they're all going to be under the heading, we might say, of that gifting that Christ has given to you in him. And let's just underscore for a minute that Christ is the source of this gift of grace. We're going to see in a moment he's the goal as well, but emphasize here Christ is the source of your gifting of grace. You don't have to come up with this on your own efforts, okay? It's not dependent on some natural ability that you've got. It's not dependent on you acquiring some skill, okay? You don't, you don't have to have... You don't have to work to get this. You don't have to be smart enough for this. Okay, it's a gift, right? So that means it's been given to you. It's not a result of your work. And so what does Paul mean by that? We'll look at verse 8. This is where he, he quotes Psalm 68, 18. When he ascended on high, now notice he's applying this to Jesus now, Right? Psalm 68 is speaking of it as God. Here's a clear point beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is being identified as God here. Don't listen to any of the sects, any of the cults that try to tell you that somehow Jesus is not fully God. Here's a perfect example of the New Testament saying exactly that because it's taking the language applied to God and it's applying to Jesus. When Jesus, when Christ, when the Messiah ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. There's a rich imagery in that verse 18 in Psalm 68. Literally, the, literally the text reads something like he took captivity captive or he made the captors captive. Uh, there, there's a wealth of, of imagery in, the, in, that, in that phrasing there. It could be, the, it could be we, we're being shown the picture of, of the king, the one who is opposed by his enemies, turning the tables on them. Okay, and they who had captured his people are now captives themselves. Uh, it could be an intimation of that of that captivity which you have under sin until you are rescued by God. Uh, it, it could even be that, that in a sense, when, when God conquers, when he destroys the kingdom of darkness, he, he takes captive, in a certain sense, those who were of that kingdom of darkness, you 
and brings them with him like a triumphant king. He's returning from battle, returning from the wars, and bringing all those whom he has made his subjects. All of that is probably packed into this. And Paul makes use of the imagery there of, of gifts in uh, Psalm 68 as well. The, the phrasing there uh, it literally says he, he, he took gifts of men. And, and so there, there's sort of a there's sort of a rich imagery there that, that, that could be pointing to the fact that God receives gifts. He takes gifts from the human race. The word Adam is used there indicating the human race in Psalm 16. That he takes from the human race those who are possessed by him. It could also mean that like a, a conquering king, he takes the spoils of war and then he brings them home and gives them to his people. And that's the sense that Paul's going to use here. So, so you could almost say that, in a sense, God has God captured you from the kingdom of darkness, made you his subjects, and given you to one another. That's how Paul's going to develop this. But first, notice in verse 9, he emphasizes the means whereby Christ attained this victory. His ascension is preceded by a descent. And remember, we said beginning of, the, the, uh, of our consideration of Psalm 68, it's important to remember lament and sorrow come before rejoicing. That this world tells you Get your happiness now. Get your joy in the here and now. Worry about paying for it later on. I mean, we do that even in our consumer culture, don't we? Get it now, pay for it later. The, the Christian mindset is exactly the opposite. Humbling always precedes exaltation. When you, when you sense yourself, when you sense the pride in you, looking for exaltation, be on your guard because you're, you're going exactly opposite to the way that the Lord wants to work in you. Now, it's, it's not pleasant to be humbled. Okay? It's not pleasing to sorrow for your sin, for example. It's not, it's not happy in a worldly sense sometimes to serve one another. But those are inevitably the means to lasting joy and exaltation. And so Paul points us to your Lord himself, who first humbles himself in saying he ascended. If we say he ascended, Paul says, then we have to assume that he descended because he was already in the highest, the loftiest place, right? I mean, Jesus himself speaks of this in his prayer in John 17. He was in glory with the Father. He couldn't ascend any higher, but he descended. He descended, and when did he do that? He did it in his incarnation. He descended to your level. 
That's what he's saying. He descended to your level. He descended to become a human being. He set aside his glory and descended. And of course, we could, we could think much of, of what that meant. He descended to, to be born of a, of a virgin, to be conceived and carried and given birth by that young Jewish maiden. He descended to live under the authority of his parents for many years, serving and obeying them. He descended to serve his family by supporting them with the work of his hands up until he was 30 years of age. He descended to spend uh, the next three years approximately in, in a ministry where he had no home. He had no place to lay his head, as he told some would-be disciples. And spending day after day after day in serving human needs of every kind, of teaching and showing love to men and women who were his disciples and who would prove unfaithful to him when things really became hard. He descended to all that, and he descended above all, of course, when he took your sins upon himself in the cross, he descended to drink the cup of God's wrath against sin. But having descended, our focus today is on his ascension. And having descended to do all that, he is he ascended, he is he is raised up, he is lifted up, as various passages tell us, because he has done the Father's will. He has accomplished the Father's task of redeeming a people for himself. And so all glory belongs to him. And so verse 10, he who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Here's one of those indications in our text that Christ is the source of your gifting. He's the source of your life spiritually. But he's also the goal. He is also the end. You are not an end in yourself. That, that would be distressing if you were an end in yourself. He is your goal. And so to get you there, verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. God has given to his church these people in these various roles. Some of these roles were were roles for just a few people at the time, like the apostles, but some of these roles are to be ongoing. And what's the goal of these? Look at verse 12. What's the, what's the purpose for the Lord's giving of people in those roles? Listen there. Well, it's to serve the saints, to serve those whom he has made his people. Remember, they're not saints because of what they've done that's good. They're saints because he has made them his people. And so God's given all these people to equip you for the work of the ministry. Now, be careful to notice there, he doesn't say he gave the apostles, the prophets, pastors, teachers to do the ministry. Okay, he gave those who teach you to equip you for the ministry. The ministry is what you do. 
And what's the end of that ministry? What's the goal of your ministry? What's the goal of your gifting as the people of God? We'll look at the last part of verse 12. For the building up of the body of Christ. You are given to one another for your mutual building up. Okay. Are you doing that? Are you building up the body? Are you involved in the construction projects that is the people of God? That, that's what you're gifted for. I hope you're not just sitting around, not putting your tools to work. So there's the purpose. You're being equipped for ministry. The word there, by the way, is the word that we get deacon from. It, Wait tables, literally, is what that, that term is used. You're, you're called to be waiters and waitresses. To, to do that work of service, humble service, that builds up the body of Christ. With the result that, where is this building heading? Looking at ver, look at verse 13. Until we all, notice the first person plural there, so you're not to say to yourself, until I attain, but until we all attain. Okay, this is not something you're going to achieve on your own. Christian life is not to be lived in isolation. The whole hermitage movement was wrong, okay? Any, any, any movement that withdraws you from the church of God is not of God. Because there is a we all here in this verse. Until we all attain to what? What's, what, what's the goal that we're seeking to see in, in the church? The unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To be one in faith and knowing Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That's, that's the source of the unity that is in the body of Christ. But he goes on. Look at the next, next clause. To mature manhood. To, to the maturity of an adult. That, that's the way you're to read this here. You're called as a body to serve one another so that you all attain that level of maturity that God has called you to. And what does that look like? Well, look at the next phrase. Maturity, in a Christian sense, means the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There again, Christ is the goal. You're, you're called and you're gifted to serve one another, to build one another up, so that you as a body look more and more like Christ. That's what he's saying, isn't it? There's true maturity. True maturity looks like Christ. Not vaunting itself over other people. Not running over other people. Not subjecting other people, but rather serving other people. And especially through love, as we'll see down in verse 15. We'll... What, what we don't want is verse 14. We won't spend a lot of time there. You don't want to be a kid just buffeted by all kinds of 
whatever teaching comes along. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Notice the emphasis on love here in those preceding verses to our text, verses 1 through 6 of of Ephesians 4 as well, and it's going to be at the end of this passage in verse 16 too. There's an importance placed here on love, speaking the truth in love, speaking the gospel, we might say, the word of God in love. It's possible to speak unlovingly. It's possible even to speak about the things of God in an unloving fashion. That's not what we're to be doing. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. See how he's emphasizing this again? We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Again, he's saying Christ is the goal. Your goal as a church, as a congregation, is to build one another up so that more and more this assembly, this congregation, this church looks like Christ. Okay? I mean, you'll you'll remember that, that that's how people came to be called Christians in the first place, right? Because they were always tra- talking about Christ. Because they were always proclaiming Christ. Because they were always living according to the teaching of Christ. So that's your goal. And notice again verse 16. It, it, this isn't something you're doing in your own strength, remember. Remember. Okay, at the beginning, back there in verse 7, we were told that the source of your gifting is Christ. The goal of your gifting is Christ, we've been told a couple of times. And now in verse 16, it's again being emphasized, the source is Christ. From whom the whole body, okay, your unity, your being of one mind that he mentioned before, that love that you showed for one another, that is all coming from Christ. You want to live this out. Remember, it's a gifting from Christ, so keep going, keep looking back to Christ for that gifting that you need to do this. Because if you try to do it in your own strength, you're going to run out, okay? Uh, I, I, for example, am, am far, far too difficult to love for you to do that in your own strength, okay? You're going to have to take, tap into the gift of Christ, to love his body. So this comes from him, from whom the whole body, now don't miss the next phrase, joined and held together by what every joint, joined and held together by every joint. There is not one unnecessary member of the body of Christ. And conversely, the body of Christ needs every single member. Again, are you, are you available to the body of Christ? Are you just cruising out somewhere on your own? Joined and held together by every joint. Christ has put together his body, and he didn't put in any superfluous parts. And he didn't leave out any. So every, every person is necessary who is a member of the body of Christ, when it, with which it is equipped Again, there's that reminder, each part of the body is equipped by the head of the body. Okay, that's what's in view here. When each part is working properly, you've been gifted as a part of the body of Christ to minister and building up the body of Christ, and that makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
There's again that emphasis on love. And ultimately, remember, this is the work of Christ in you. How does he do that through you? He does it through his spirit, right? It's the, his Holy Spirit that brought you to repentance and faith. Without that work, Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, without that work of the new birth, you're dead. You, you, you can never be a part of the kingdom of God. You are not part of the body of Christ until his spirit awakes in you an understanding of your sin and you repent of that sin and you place your faith in him. But remember that he doesn't just stop there. Because his goal for you as a body of Christ, as a people of God that transcends this earthly existence, is to look like him. And don't you look forward to that? Aren't there sometimes days when you just say, oh, I wish, I fervently wish I was free from this sin, from this temptation that I'm struggling with. Don't you ever wish that? Long for that time when Christ will present his bride, the church, before the Father, perfect and without spot. Well, that's, that's a goal. That's a reality that we are guaranteed you're going to experience as a child of God. But in the meantime, you have the wonderful privilege of being used by the Spirit to grow, to grow in that direction, to grow in love. Christ has ascended in glory, in power, and he has given gifts to his people. And those gifts are you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, enable us by your grace, uh, even through one another, uh, to discover the places where you have each one of us in the body of Christ, and to seek to, to, seek to love you and love one another as you have called us to love. And, and we do, Lord, pray that you would give us that mindset that sees the church as as the body of Christ, that sees our identity is wrapped up in you and our relationship with you, and, and give us hearts that, that long to see that lived out and that enjoy uh, using the gifts that you have given to us and specifically ways which uh, you uh, will lead us to glorify you. And, and then, Lord, may, may what you do in and through us uh, be such a testimony of the gracious work of your spirit as you enable us to love one another, that it is a testimony to the world around us that is languishing without that love. And, and we pray, Lord, then, that, that the church would grow not only spiritually but numerically as well as we proclaim the good news to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.